listening to Dedication Point, an oral history of the Morley Nelson Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. This oral history project was produced by the Birds of Prey NCA Partnership, working in close collaboration with the Bureau of Land Management, the Wildlands Collective, and the Peregrine Fund's Archives of Falconry. The series features 20 interviews conducted with key figures in the history of the Snake River Canyon region. This is the eighth interview that we've released as a part of this series. Larry LaRocco served as congressman from Idaho's first congressional district in the U.S. House of Representatives from 1991 through 1994. When he was elected, LaRocco knew very little about the Snake River Canyon region, but he had cut his teeth as a politician working on wilderness legislation in central Idaho as a field coordinator for Senator Frank Church. LaRocco entered Congress at a moment when Morley Nelson, Cecil Andrus, and others were starting to become concerned about the need to permanently protect the Snake River Canyon. The Snake River Birds of Prey natural area had been protected through a 20-year administrative withdrawal back in 1980, so by 1991 there were less than 10 years left to make that protection permanent, and folks like Morley Nelson could hear the clock ticking. Representative LaRocco took this issue on and was able to use his experience in dealing with public lands issues to establish permanent protection for the Snake River Canyon region. Morley Nelson was in his 70s when the area was officially declared as the Snake River Birds of Prey NCA. Morley's name wouldn't be added to the official title until after his death. Although Morley had been working to protect this region for close to half his life, the legislation that finally established permanent protected status for the area was Larry LaRocco's greatest political victory. Without Representative LaRocco, the area might have lost its protected status. I'm Larry LaRocco. Uh, I'm a former congressman from the 1st District of Idaho. I served in the U.S. House of Representatives from 1991 to 1995. So those four years were spent on the Interior and Insular Affairs Committee, and then I had also a committee assignments on the Banking Committee. But I was an active legislator and very active in public lands issues over a span of 30 years or so. I'd like to talk about sort of the the seed of your interest, both in politics and in the public lands issue and natural resources conservation generally. Yeah. Like, where did you grow up and where did these interests come from? Well, the interests really grew up in my love for Idaho and living in a public land state. I mean, it all starts with that because Idaho is owned uh, 63% by the federal government. So we are confronted with public lands issues every day and the way we recreate and the way our lives are here. And, and it's one of the beauties of living in Idaho is having the public lands available to us so close. So it's unlike other states. There are some states that have more public land ownership, but we have beautiful forests that were set aside early on and and lots of controversies about those lands and how they're used and who gets access to them and what the extraction industries can do in those areas. My real love started, I grew up in California. I married a Basque woman from Boise and in 1969, we were living back east. I was going to graduate school, and I was subject to the draft. The Vietnam War was raging, and we were living in D.C. without air conditioning and a seven-month-old child. And I said, why don't we move to that place that you told me about called McCall, Idaho? And so in 1969, in June, we moved out to McCall, and it was an instant love affair with the backcountry and the natural resources. After the Army, I came back and worked in Boise and then Twin Falls and worked on Senator Church's campaign in 1974 and got to know him. And he asked me to join his staff in 1975. And I was pretty happy when I first heard that because I thought that I was going to go back to Washington, D.C., where I had studied international relations. And he asked me if I would go to Moscow, Idaho, and be his North Idaho field representative. And so we moved to Moscow, Idaho, and for six years I represented Senator Church from the Salmon River to the Canadian border in 10 counties. So if you just think about that landscape and how beautiful it is and the number of forests in that area and that time, the conflicts of locals with 
timber-dependent communities and access to, to timber and the roadless questions. I got deeply involved in those issues working for Senator Church. One of the main major issues was the Gospel Hump Wilderness, where the Sierra Club and the environmentalists coveted that area. It was prime candidate for wilderness designation, and they were working hard on that. And the local Chamber of Commerce was very much opposed to it. So there was a big meeting in Grangeville one time with Senator Church, and he was asked to mediate a solution. And he said he would do that, and then he assigned me to do that. Um, So I was the -the on-the-ground person in Grangeville and Elk City between the timber industry, the Chamber of Commerce, and the Sierra Club. And after about a year and a half of discussions, shuttling things back and forth and maps and conflicts resolved and so forth, we came up with a proposal that then became part of the omnibus wilderness legislation in 79, I believe. And so we passed that bill and I got deeply involved in those issues. And the whole area of northern Idaho was involved in timber cuts and allocation of resources and access to the, the backcountry and and we had so many acres, millions of acres of roadless lands that had no designations on them at all. But Church waded into the River of No Return wilderness issue, and I was helpful with him on a staff level with that and fortunate enough to sit behind him on the floor of the Senate on the day that we passed that bill through the Senate. It was a very proud day for me uh, to be with him, and uh, it was a very gutsy thing for him to do at the time. So I was just steeped in these issues, and he asked me to negotiate a settlement for the St. Joe River, which was very contentious. And so we got that done, passed into law, and then we just we tried a couple of other things where the locals just didn't even want to sit down and talk about those things. So I saw a lot of issues that needed to be resolved. I saw a lot of headbutting and people that weren't so happy with any federal intrusion into you know their decision making at the local level. But I saw the role that Congress played in those issues. I ran for Congress in 1982 after Church lost. And I had a very interesting strategy where I I took a job in every one of the counties. There are 19 counties for a week at a time. And some of those jobs were timber-related, building logging roads, for example, up in Boundary County and Bonners Ferry. and, And I just continued my involvement and immersion into public lands issues. And my mentor, Senator Church, I saw him put his job on the line to protect the best that we have. So that was sort of my orientation. And then I teed it up again in 1990 to run for Congress and was successful. So I'm really fascinated by the process involved in, you know, getting those those wilderness bills passed, right? Because I think there's this perception that it's just a group of people in Washington looking at a map, drawing a boundary and saying, yeah, we need to protect this area. But clearly, I mean, you were on the ground negotiating with the residents of, of these areas. And I'm curious to hear more about what that process was like, how you took that feedback in and integrated it into the proposals that you were putting forth? I mean, what was that process like? And I'm sure you learned a lot by dealing directly with those community members. Well, the community members are made up of people who might represent the interests of a timber-dependent community, for example, whose lifeline and lifeblood and economy depends on the flow of timber from the federal lands, for example. And it can also involve local citizens who are members of environmental groups who really get to know it. And the way that the environmental community generally acts, at least the Sierra Club, is that they always have people who sort of adopt areas and they get to know them and they go out into these areas and and spend a lot of time and they get to know a great deal about the areas from the biology to the soils to the water quality to the uh, habitat, the game and fish and so forth. And then you have the economic interests and then you have an ideological sort of covering of all of this for some people who just don't want the federal government, you know, locking up and protecting places. So in terms of the central Idaho wilderness, which was the River of No Return wilderness, there were a number of giants who were environmentalists who just kept looking at this area and studying it. And what they came up with was a proposal that protected 
really the watershed. When you look at the boundaries, the watershed is what's most important so that you'll see that the boundaries go up to the top of the ranges and so forth and protect the water that's coming down into the Selway River, for example, or the Salmon, Middle Fork, and all the tributaries of that. So that the water is really, really kind of drives a lot of these issues. And uh, so the boundaries are drawn that way. And, and of course, in the middle of that, there could be huge stands of timber, which are accessible if only roads could be built in there and so forth. So it's a fine tuning of the local folks who know the land best. And then you have the land managers that play a role. The BLM, for example, in the Birds of Prey area, played a dramatic role in learning about this magnificent resource with the birds of prey and the monitoring them and seeing what their flight patterns were and so forth. So so you have this collision, if you will, but this intersection probably is a better word of the, the locals and the, the federal agencies and scientists and, and just interest groups. There were, you know, at least 30 interest groups in the birds of prey, but in the other areas, there are always people that are interested, all the way from archaeologists to hikers, motorbike enthusiasts, motorcycles, ATVs, to just people who don't even live in the area who think that they should protect the area. So reconciling all of these differences is, is very difficult. Now, we've seen sort of a, a change from the 70s to the 90s and, and, and into this century in terms of how these areas even come forward to Congress. And in the past, it was more of a top-down approach where groups would propose certain areas and members of Congress would introduce bills and then they would get a reaction from people. What we found recently, even with the Hawaii Initiative with the, that Mike Craigbo championed and uh, the Boulder White Clouds is that you saw more of it coming up from the local area, from, you know, county commissioners might say that, you know, if we don't get a decision on this, then our economy is going to be, we need resolution, you know, and that's generally what starts a discussion is let's have certainty. Let's have a decision about this. And once that starts, then people start coming together and sharing maps and sharing ideas and so forth. And, and the process starts that way. I took more of a top-down approach, which I was successful with, with the Birds of Prey. I didn't ask permission or I didn't ask, you know, for anybody to sign off on what I was doing. I just did it. And that's because nobody had done anything for 10 years and the clock was ticking. But I also tried a top-down approach with the wilderness, and that, that, that didn't work so well at that time. Because I don't think it was baked in enough as it was with the birds of prey. Because there was so much scientific data about the birds of prey. That, that was really helpful. And the BLM deserves a lot of credit for that. And just the people like Morley Nelson and just people that love birds. It's pretty magnificent. A lot of that scientific research that led to at least the initial action of, of setting aside the Birds of Prey, Snake River Canyon area, was done while you were working for Frank Church in the 70s, right? I'm just curious if you were aware of what was going on down in the Birds of Prey while you were up in northern Idaho working on these separate but also super important wilderness issues. Was there an awareness that this there was also this, this other important sort of public lands issue going on simultaneously? Um, I pretty much had my head down, uh, to be honest with you, in North Idaho. Mm -hmm. I, I had all I could handle in terms of working on behalf of Senator Church up there. There was something in the echo chamber about it that mm -hmm. I knew about, mainly because of contacts that I had. For example, there's a wonderful guy who has since passed away, uh, Scott Reed, who is a national board member of the Audubon Society. And Scott had told me about the Birds of Prey area and that there was a magnificent area down there. And so I knew about it. And then when I ran for Congress in 82, because we had moved from Moscow down to Boise, then I became more aware of it right after the ES was done and a lot of the scientific data was accumulated. So all of a sudden, my interest was heightened dramatically because I was down here and, and heard about it. And C. Sandras was very helpful to me in my 82 campaign, and you can't find a better lobbyist than C. Sandras. He was an amazing man, and you always knew where he stood, and he was passionate about that area. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's when I first met Morley Nelson as well, was in 82. So all of a sudden, I'm aware, mm -hmm. and I know that this resource exists and that nothing's being done. Do you have a memory of a trip that maybe you, you took out there, a memory of seeing that area, you know, maybe for the first time or maybe in, at some point during this period of time when you're becoming more aware of all the issues that are going on in that yeah, I mean, I, I took a trip with the Audubon Society, for example. Scott got me involved, and uh, he brought the Audubon Society out from uh, 
wherever, mm-hmm. you know, from all parts of the country. The whole board came out. I participated in that trip. And so they had a trip down the river, and I'm sitting there with all these bird enthusiasts, and they're pointing out stuff, and I'm learning the whole time, and mm-hmm. I'm just seeing what they were seeing. And, of course, that board is made up of political activists, but scientists and biologists and so forth. So, so just hearing them, you know, when you look at the area, you know it's magnificent with the cliffs and everything, but you really don't know what's going on up there until somebody really tells you what's going on. And, and we have a way of sort of looking at things in Idaho and not truly appreciating what we see on a daily basis and what other people don't see. So that, that was my first impression. And it was, it was done with Scott. And then he played a major role in 1986 when he was an intervener in the suit against the Department of the Interior where the Sagebrush Rebellion folks in the Mountain States Legal Foundation tried to, well, they tried to kill the ES and say that it was flawed. And, uh, that, and remember, their recommendation was that Congress should act and introduce legislation to pass it. Congress generally described as Congress. So it, it didn't matter. It could have been a congressman or a senator from Florida if somebody took it. But under general courtesy in the Congress, generally those actions are taken by the in-state members of the delegation. Mm-hmm. And nobody stepped forward. <laughs> In the 80s right. to do that. So you ran for Congress in 82, you said. I did. And lost. And then you didn't run again until? I ran for the state Senate in 1986. Both times I came close as a Democrat and 46.5%, 47%. But I'd run against Jim Risch in 1986 for the state Senate, which was a big district at that time. And the way it was configured, it was all of Ada County. So mm-hmm. it was the whole thing. It was called the Floterial District. And at that time, it was the most expensive legislative race in the history of the state. And so I narrowly lost and thought that my political future was over. I had lost twice, even though they were narrow losses. And I just went back to being a stockbroker. <laughs> so what inspired you to, to run for a third time in 1990? Well, I stayed involved. I was chairman of Idahoans for the Lottery in 1988. And it was a statewide initiative. And it passed in Idaho, and really because the first district of Idaho, every county passed it. And uh, so I kind of took a look at that. And I had run against two incumbents, Larry Craig and Jim Risch. And then uh, Jim McClure decided to retire in 1990. And immediately, Larry Craig, who was the first district congressman, decided to run for the U.S. Senate. It was an open seat. My wife and I huddled, and we had a policy of not running against incumbents, and it was now an open seat. So I ran and got through a three-way primary and beat a five-term state senator and became the first Democrat in 24 years to win the seat in the first district of Idaho. (laughs) (laughs) So um, tenacity pays off in all kinds of ways, I mean, in in what we do in life. And it took me eight years to win a seat in Congress, which is, that story is not uh, so unique. A lot of people don't make it the first time. You know, Frank Church didn't win his first race. C. Sanders didn't win his first race. George Bush ran for Congress, Obama ran for Congress, and Bill Clinton ran for Congress, and they never made it. Of course, they became president. That's a different story. But uh, <laughs> So anyway, I was very happy. I was the happiest guy on uh, the planet to win that seat in 1990. It was, it was a long trek. I mean, what there. do you think your, your key to, to success was in 1990? And, I, and I'm curious, like, specifically if you were talking about public lands issues or natural resource conservation issues. I mean, were you talking at all about what was going on in the the birds of prey area at that time? Not so much the birds of prey, but I think my secret was that I had built up quite a bit of equity with voters because of the campaign that I ran in 1982. And the fact that I had taken those jobs all over the county branded me as somebody who was willing to listen to people and get on the ground with folks where they worked. And that was sort of a reputation that I had. And also being involved in a major way in the lottery was, uh, was helpful. I was a businessman, so more moderate when it comes to fiscal issues. But we did discuss timber supply a lot during that time. And and my knowledge of timber supply, I think, came through to a lot of timber-dependent communities because I understood what terminology was. I would get in debates and, and really understand what was important. And I really labeled the roadless lands question as a timber supply issue, not so much a, a wilderness issue. And it was an issue that I wanted to solve and wade into. And I told the voters of the first district that I wanted to resolve the roadless lands question and that I really wanted a seat on the Interior Committee as well. 
And I think that resonated with people. I think they thought that uh, I was somebody that could maybe roll up my sleeves and get that done. So I won with 53% of the vote, and it was a hard-fought campaign. But I was very happy to go to Congress, and then I had to fight, actually, and lobby to get a seat on the Interior Committee. That was not automatic, and actually, there were only four seats that were available because of retirements and so forth on the committee, and there were four Easterners, uh, members of Congress from the East, who wanted those seats, and basically they wanted them to burnish and shine up their environmental credentials. None of them had timber-dependent communities or came from public land states. So I lobbied hard for that, and then uh, the Speaker of the House, my neighbor, uh, Tom Foley, expanded the committee by one that got me on the committee. And he actually, you know, felt that having a neighbor, he had timber supply issues as well in in Washington, um, and he wanted somebody that understood those issues that was his neighbor. It was a great day to win that seat. But uh, sitting on the Natural Resources Committee, or as is now known, and the Interior Committee, is not an easy assignment when you come from a public land state because uh, we are dealing with the spotted owl issues and so forth. But, but immediately when I got there, I think my uh, colleagues knew that I was a serious uh, member of the committee, that uh, I really wanted to work on issues. And I introduced nine pieces of legislation in my first two years. Three of them were referred to the committee, and one of them was the Birds of Prey bill. So we set up the office in January, and uh, by April I introduced a Birds of Prey bill. But, you know, uh, uh, people don't understand how important it is to work with your committee and the chairman and the staff and so forth to really get those things done. And so George Miller was a contemporary of mine age-wise, but he had been in the Congress since 1974. And Bruce Vento was also a contemporary age-wise, but he had been in a long time. He was from Minnesota. And these guys loved to legislate. Boy, they loved to protect public lands. And when they saw that I had a, a bill and a passion for the birds of prey, then we just started working on that together. But I would go to field hearings with that committee, build up relationships with, with these two guys, Bruce Vento and George Miller, and and uh, the staff. Uh, they knew. I mean, I showed up for every committee hearing, every subcommittee hearing, for markups. I participated. And I took a lot of tough votes, too, in terms of my district, uh, because the spotted owl stuff and was was going on then and it was pretty tough but uh, keep in mind that at that point george bush was president as well so so i introduced the bill we held a hearing subcommittee chairman came out and i started working with the staff and you know we created the bill for the national conservation area so but i didn't as i mentioned i didn't ask permission from any of the stakeholders or the the groups that you know should i do this or i just introduced the bill and then i said now let's have comments on it and i got plenty <laughs> I got plenty. So, I mean, it sounds clear that, you know, from the moment you took office, it was a priority for you to get on this committee so that you could have, you know, the ability to, like, you know, pass legislation, make decisions about natural resource issues. I mean, I'm sure you were involved in lots of other issues as well. But well, I, I, I was, but uh, again, uh, my orientation was coming out of six years of staff work for Senator Church in North Idaho, mm-hmm. where we were constantly working on public lands issues. Yeah. And then we had this dead time in the 80s where nothing was done for our state. And so when I got there, there was a huge backlog in my mind of things that needed to be done. The roadless mm-hmm. lands question, the classification of rivers, and, and but the birds of prey. Yeah. It was there. It was ripe. It was. Uh, it had been withdrawn, and nothing was done over the the ten years from its withdrawal, and the clock was ticking. Mm-hmm. What people don't know in today's world, I mean, when they think back of the history of this, is that the withdrawal was only valid for twenty years. So we had already exhausted ten years of that twenty years, and. Nobody had done anything, so I just decided I was going to do it. And the the larger issue of the wilderness was was going to be tougher. This one had been pretty much set in place in terms of the the, the boundaries, and and we knew what the important issues were with all of the existing uses. You know, whether it was the National Guard, whether it was the shooters, whether it was water users, whether it was the ORV folks, and and, and uh, the grazers. I mean. They, they had all been down there for years. 
but the, the ES took into consideration all of those things. What we had to do was set up something that had the birds as a major focus, and then everything revolved around that. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what we did. But I took a lot of heat. There was distrust of me, I think, that I saw in the letters that came in because I was the first Democrat in 24 years. They didn't know what to think of that. I didn't go... Uh, you know, setting up meetings with the Cattlemen's Association before I introduced the bill. I just introduced the bill, and, you know, I mean, they knew it was coming, and then they wanted to see what it was. And and then the NCA classification was new to Idaho. The, uh, this was going to be the eighth one. There were only seven. And I had to defend at one time the management of all seven of those. I was criticized by doing something, uh, setting this up because uh, there were stories like fake news, as we now call it, that the seven had not been worked out. And it was all just sort of urban legend. And so I had to go and research every one of those and and then defend what had happened and uh, debunk the rumors that had taken place with the NCAs. So we had some uh, heated meetings. We exchanged, you know, some heated mail. But I think slowly there was trust. But this is a fine line. You know, I can take what I think is right for Idaho, and then I have to go and talk to my colleagues on the committee, and I have to talk to the subcommittee chairman and the chairman. And they may have ideas, too, because we tend to think that these are our lands, they're Idaho lands, but they're federal lands. So that's a fine line in doing that. So I could take our position, maybe from an Idaho perspective, and then take it to the leadership, and then they might have a different things. So I work out compromise, but then the locals might think that I had sold out. So we did pass the bill. I had 46 co-sponsors of the bill. I had two that were very important. I had the chairman of the committee. He was number one. He was the number one co-sponsor. And then I had Richard Stallings, who was a congressman from the second district. And then I had 44 other colleagues that thought that this, this was very important. And two Republicans on the bill, two Republicans, 44 Democrats. So then uh, we moved the bill forward, had a hearing out here, and uh, moved it forward, passed it on suspension of the rules, which means that it was non-controversial. So nobody objected to that, then it moved over to the Senate. And then Larry Craig had a choice of whether he was going to block it or take it up, and to his credit, he took it up, and he amended the bill, and he toughened the bill in certain areas. For example, there's a big difference between the words shall and will and authorize and require uh, in legislation. Those are big deals. And people tend to stay away from the heavy hand of the government, you know, and and the bureaucracy, and they they don't want to put it in the hands of... So so the language changed, but it was essentially the same bill, and then we ran out of time in what was the 102nd Congress at the end of the year. And so what a lot of people don't understand about legislation is that if it doesn't pass in that session of Congress, in that Congress, then you start over. It's done. It didn't happen. I mean, you, you've built a record, and you've gotten lots of press maybe and lots of attention and visibility to the issue. But from a congressional, statutory, legislative perspective, it has died, and it has to come back. It has to have a champion to, to, to come back. The other thing to keep in mind is that nothing happens in Congress without having a champion. It doesn't, you can't have an idea that's sort of floating around. It has to have a bill number. It has to have language. And it has to be introduced by somebody. And generally, it has to be somebody on the right committee, and then it gets referred to the the right committee and all of that. So it has to be drafted so that it goes to the right committees and all of that, so it doesn't get into jurisdictional issues. So I was the champion, and then it had died. So then we came back in 2000, or in 1993, and the day that the Congress was open for business, I introduced nine pieces of legislation that I was sponsoring, and one of them was the Birds of Prey. The first number on the bill that I introduced was 2,141, which suggested that it was late in the game. This one was 2,000, it was 236. So it was on January 5th, so we were ready to go. We had it done. It was, And Larry Craig had essentially signed off on it. We had worked out the differences, and we were ready to go. But in the meantime, I was reelected in November, and I had announced that I was already going to start holding town meetings on a wilderness bill. So I was already busy all over Idaho holding town meetings on wilderness. So now I had just put more issues on my plate, but that was fine. I had great staff, and we worked hard. So we got it passed 
on suspension of the rules. And then it went to the Senate, and Larry Craig kept his promise to his credit, and the bill moved forward on unanimous consent and moved to the White House. And the president signed it on August 4th, 1993. It was a very proud day for me to pass that. Yeah, I bet. I mean, especially after going through that whole process, initially introducing it and then not completing the process in time. I mean, I I guess I wonder, like, you must have been aware at that time when you introduced the first version of the bill that you were coming up on this deadline. I mean, I I guess I just wonder what that was like. I mean, was that a nerve-wracking experience, knowing that, you know, you were running up against this deadline and you might have to start over? It was terribly nerve-wracking because uh, uh, the Senate is the Senate. And uh, they just do things at their own pace, at their own speed. And Larry Craig had his own relationship with the chairman of the committee. He was a Republican. The chairman was a Democrat. The Democrat, Bennett Johnson, from Louisiana, knew that there was interest. C. Sanders was pounding him and and, uh, writing to him and saying, let's move this bill. And so it moved through the process. But, but it wasn't exactly the same bill, which if, if it had been the same bill, then it would have moved right to the president's desk. But because it was amended and then we ran out of time, I mean, it was extremely frustrating for me. I mean, I'm not a, at that point, I wasn't a seasoned legislator, but it's all of a sudden we're running out of time and it's going to die. And I just spent, you know, almost two years working on this piece of legislation with lots of meetings and lots of contention. And I wanted it to be resolved. And I wanted to move on to other issues. You wanted it, I wanted to bake that cake. And I was coming up for re-election as well. My opponent actually opposed the Birds of Prey area in 1992, Rachel Gilbert. She actually opposed the creation of the National Conservation Area. So if I had lost the election, she wouldn't have taken it up. Who knows what would have happened mm-hmm. to the bill. So this is another thing that we have to realize is that Politics matters, and and Mm -hmm. who's in office matters. But I did win, and I was ready to go on January 5th, and the bill was in. So we were able to move that through. I mean, it's it's interesting to me that this question of whether or not this area should be designated as an NCA was an, an issue in your campaign. It's interesting in a certain sense, right? Because if that actually was, you know, I'm sure one of many important issues to voters at that time, I mean... In a sense, that's like the people of Idaho, or at least the first district, saying, yes, we want this to be a national well, conservation area, right? Yeah, I mean, she was taking, my opponent was taking a very strong ideological position that she did not want the federal government designating a lockup of the lands and so forth. And, of course, I didn't take that approach. I thought it was protecting the lands and, and that there had been so much work that had gone into it. Mm-hmm. But. You have to realize that the the Sagebrush Rebellion and the Farm Bureau, I mean, there were, the Farm Bureau is a very strong lobbying force in the state of Idaho. And when they speak, people, you know, listen or they, you know, run for cover. And their position was that they thought that it would be intrusive and that it was just a subterfuge for expanding the 482,000 acres and, and having more lockups and inability to farm and ranch and, and do everything that we do in Idaho uh, to have access to those lands. And so she took that position, but uh, to the credit of the statesman uh, newspaper, they, they were following this, and they knew that it was bipartisan. They knew that I was listening to the groups. They, at that point, I don't think they, they could have called the cattlemen and asked them you know, to give a negative report on what I was doing. This was strictly ideological. You know, I mean, I understand the trust factor there because I had to earn their trust on, on what I was doing. But it didn't mean that we didn't disagree on, on certain approaches because I just didn't see the, the big arm of the federal government as they did. You know, I mean, I'm the guy that helped create the gospel hump wilderness and, and worked on other things. So I, I believe in this protection. I think that it can be done right. And that if you bring people together, that uh, it can be done right. And there were enough stakeholders in the, that they had their opinion. But her position was ideological. And then when I lost to Helen Chenoweth in 1994, she clearly did not believe in these types of federal actions for protection. So if I had not done it in my four years in, in the House of Representatives, then, then that clock was going to really tick and expire, I think. And uh, she sat on the same committee I did. But she took a different approach to things. I don't want to sit here and badmouth her, but but uh, she immediately got into a huge fight with her 
committee chairman over what the definition of private rights and grazing rights were, and he was a rancher, and she took an ideological position, and I, I, I don't see how that works if you're a legislator and you need to have the committee working for you, you know, to, but, you know, she was there for three terms, and, and uh, but I think my legacy, if there is such a thing, and my, my record of accomplishment speaks for itself in terms of, you know, the amendments that I got passed beyond the birds of prey and other bills that I had signed into law. I was there to go to work and roll up my sleeves. That's just the way I approach life. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, you know, we're all different. We take a different approach to this. I was tenacious, and then we got it done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I wonder, I mean, so you were voted in for a second term, yeah. and one of the first things you did, I mean, you said you introduced nine bills the first day you showed up for work after getting reelected, and one of those was the bill to create this national conservation area, and I'm sure it was much easier to uh, go through that process the second time around, having already established all the uh, relationships and going through the process, having that experience to get it done quickly the second time around. And, you know, you describe briefly like that moment of being in the Oval Office for the signing of that bill for it going into law. I mean, and obviously, like the, the focus of this discussion is this topic is the Morley Nelson Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area. So that's our focus here. But I guess I'm just wondering, like, within the context of all the other things that you accomplished, you know, during your tenure in, in in Congress like where where does this stand like do you see this as one of your greatest achievements or was this just something that needed to happen and you got it done no this was this is number one mm-hmm. this is number one I'm extremely proud of this I mean from the first week that we were there I said let's get this done and I had a, a new staffer I mean she was new to me but she had not worked on the hill and we just worked this together through the process and building that bill over, I mean, that was a short period of time because we introduced that bill in April. And so it, we put all hands on deck with that bill. And we just said, this is job one and let's do it. Let's get this done. Let's understand the process. So that consumed a lot of time. And at the end of it, uh, this is 2018, this is 25 years after, yes, it is my greatest accomplishment, I think, there. I mean, I, I, I passed a bill to help kids, you know, with deadbeat dads, you know, that weren't given them money. I helped, you know, I passed a bill to create the East Mojave Preserve in California, which was 1.6 million acres, and multiple amendments that I worked on. But this, as a standalone bill, through the process, was sort of a case study and, and uh, what needed to be done. So it was a convergence of me getting elected, in action during the 80s. I had great staff. I had a wonderful relationship with my subcommittee chairman and chairman. And then the president was there to sign it. And there are instances of people working for years to create wilderness and then have Reagan veto the bills. And they've never resurfaced. Uh, this is a case in Montana, for example. So it, the stars were aligned, but when you start the process, you got to say, well, maybe the stars aren't aligned, but you got to take that chance because not doing anything, there are lots of excuses you can make. You could say, oh, I don't want to do this my first term because it might be controversial. I don't want to take a chance. I want to play it safe. Well, you don't know if you get a second chance in, in Congress, especially if you're a Democrat from Idaho. I mean, let's be honest here. I mean, that that is absolutely the case. So I just had to work. Now, keep in mind, I won every county for re-election in 1992. So something was going right. I think people liked my approach. And and that was a singular event. But it worked out well for the birds of prey because it was teed up and ready to go. Mm -hmm. And then again, couldn't have been done without Larry Craig's cooperation in the Senate. I have to recognize that. I mean, Mm -hmm. he, he didn't do anything when he was in the House of Representatives in the 80s. But I think because I took the lead on it and I showed that we could work together with these groups and that we could actually put together language that worked for them, that why not? And then there was some public pressure. I mean, you know, here we were with the biggest newspaper in the state, you know, weighing in frequently and following the process as it went along and saying, this is good for Idaho. This is what we should be doing. They mm-hmm. recognize what a great resource it was mm-hmm. that should be protected. So so then you go back to people like Andrus and, and Morley Nelson and the biologists and the BLM and all of that that just kind of told the story of that. And so the obstructionists 
were sort of marginalized during that period because they didn't have much to say except I just don't want to do it. And protecting it was going to be something that we could all be proud of and that we could all take home. So, uh, so I, I was just so happy to be part of it. And but I'm I'm glad also. I mean, as a person, that I recognized that it just needed to be done. I just didn't waste any time, and I didn't go around asking for permission from people to do anything. It, this is what you do as a member of Congress. It's a wonderful position. You can do what you want. I introduced nine bills and sponsored nine bills in my first term. And my second term, I introduced 31 pieces of legislation. And I had hearings on classifying the Lower Salmon River under the Wild and Scenic Rivers Act. I had a forest health bill that we had hearings on out in Idaho. I had a wilderness bill that we had hearings on and, and then other bills that had to do with banking issues and so forth. So I had a really good staff and we were really busy all the time. I mean, we had, I was going to field hearings all over the country on weekends with my leadership and, and doing stuff. So it was a busy time. It was frenetic. It was chaotic. And for this particular issue on the NCA, we did it. Uh, I mean, we were successful. I wonder if the NCA came up when you ran for re-election the third time in 94, right? Was that an issue that was being discussed when you were campaigning? I, I certainly touted it, that I was successful in doing that type of thing, that, that particular thing. And that year, all that mattered was that it was a midterm election and Bill Clinton was extremely unpopular and things were, just weren't working. Also, I think my wilderness bill was um, shook up a lot of people in timber-dependent communities, and there was an increased level of distrust in what I was trying to do. There was uh, concern with union members uh, in mills up and down the district that uh, their jobs were in jeopardy. There were efforts to create resource councils within the mills with uh, working men and women who were devoted to lobbying the Congress to not do anything uh, that would protect the lands and, and to increase the cut. But and, and my forest health bill actually still stands as a wonderful piece of legislation to that was common sense and was geared to deal with the, the fire dangers and other things like that. The environmentalists distrusted me on that bill because they thought it was an excuse for uh, extracting more timber at the time. So I was getting it from all sides, actually. And so, you know, I'm a pro-choice Democrat, pro-wilderness guy that was a Democrat at a time when Bill Clinton's popularity may have been, you know, 22 percent or something in Idaho. So uh, so it was pretty tough. That was a, that was a wave election, mm-hmm. a midterm wave election, which I think we're going to see here in about um, 61 days. You know, I think we're going to see the same sort of thing, but in reverse. So these things happen, and they happen when you have a marginal seat. It's not that I was a marginal congressman. It was that I had a marginal seat, and that is that it went back and forth. And as you look at the history of the, the seat since I was in, we've had one Democrat who was there, Walt Minnick, for one term, and you know, things have flipped back a little bit, back and forth, but not all that much. And we've had this huge influx of people who tend to be more conservative than it was in the 80s and early 90s. So Idaho has changed quite a bit. And I know this for a fact because I ran for statewide office in 2006 and 2008. And I thought that I could make a comeback and I was wrong. <laughs> it didn't work. <laughs> but, you know, I'm, I was in the arena, got my eyes black, blackened, and, and my nose bloody, and that's just the way it is. I think I made the system work, and I made my opponents work harder, too. Hmm. So you, you ran for statewide office in 2006 and 2008. Were you running for Senate? I ran for, the lieutenant, for lieutenant, lieutenant governor, governor. in okay. 2006 and okay. the U.S. Senate in 2008. Okay. And those were different types of races. I actually ran on uh, the issue of methamphetamine in 2006. And I was running against the sitting governor who was running for lieutenant governor and, and got 39% of the vote and then fell short of that in 2008 based on the fact that I basically didn't have enough resources to run. And that campaign, I was running against Rich's uh, special session that he did where he totally changed the funding formula for education, which has been disastrous for the state of Idaho. And, mm-hmm. and that was a major issue in that campaign. Mm-hmm. Yes. Getting back to your, your point, though, the Birds of Prey NCA was, was number one. There were more things to do, but that sure was the, at the top of the hit parade in terms of my uh, accomplishments while I was in Congress. Mm-hmm. I mean, what do you think the 
future of politics in Idaho looks like. I mean, we're in this very, this Republican stronghold of a state, but demographics are changing. Boise is the fastest growing metropolitan area in the country. What do you think the future holds? And is, are there opportunities for uh, Democrats or more progressive candidates, you think, moving into the future? Yeah, I, I do. I believe in pendulum swings and politics and that when things get out of whack, then they move back towards the middle. I see a Republican Party that is in a civil war right now for its own identity. The Democrats are attracting a lot of young people and women to the cause. I, I think this midterm election is going to be very telling. Uh, the other thing that is, I think, a focus right now is um, is Medicaid expansion and health care. And those uh, those types of issues are crossing party lines, and they start dealing with the income inequality that we have, and certainly education, which is, I trace back to Jim Risch's special session where he altered the, the funding formula for education forever and, and has caused a major crisis in education in this state, which has lost generations of students. And, and so I think education is going to be an issue where Idahoans are going to demand that the state abide by the constitution and provide uniform education throughout the state. So I, th I think on education, health care, and those types of issues, I think we're going to see a move back towards the middle. And the defeat of Labrador in the, the primary, I think, is a very telling thing. And the demise or decline of Trump's popularity, I think, is going to also bring back people to the middle. And, and we've always had a strong cohort of independents in Idaho, and I think that that is growing. That That's why I was elected, because I was able to move into the independent part of the political spectrum and attract people to me because I believed in balanced budgets and, and those types of things. But you get caught in wave elections, and it's pretty tough to swim there. But I think we're going to come back. I do. I think growth is going to be a huge issue in Idaho. I mean, we all feel it, you mm -hmm. know, traffic and what's going on here. I mean, I know we've been, you know, we all... In, in this conversation, have d discovered Idaho earlier than the people that are moving in this week. But uh, <laughs> it doesn't mean they're not going to love it and, and cherish it. And, you know, it's just wonderful to see all these people biking around here and kayaks. And you can have it all right here. And why? Because we have the public lands. This gets right back to the NCA. Yep. It gets back to the public lands. You can go out and see the mag most magnificent, you know, concentration of birds of prey in the world. 30 miles away from us right here and you can you know you can be fly fishing for trout you know on the south fork close and you know i was uh, hiking up out of mccall a week ago and saw one person on the trail and you know where does that happen you know and it's just it's just wonderful the public lands are really important and i don't think they'll be really a resurgence of this sagebrush rebellion but this stuff of privatizing the public lands i i don't think idahoans will stand for it so they toyed with this idea in the 80s it's come back again uh, labrador messed around with that issue and he's gone and simpson has shown us what can be done with tenacity it took him 10 years to get that bill through my effort pales in comparison to his in a sense but, but the tenacity that he showed and at the end result, and he created some enemies for himself by doing that. But that's what we should be doing as members of Congress. We should not operate just in our comfort zone. We should operate outside of our comfort zone to do the right thing for the protection of these beautiful lands. And that's what Simpson did on that. And I really give him a lot of credit for it. I really do. Dick Gebhardt once told a bunch of us, he said, do right, risk consequences. And that's not a bad thing. I mean, I had four years in Congress, but there have been fewer than 12,000 Americans that had the chance that I did and the privilege and the honor to serve in the Congress of the United States. What I feel good about is that every minute that I was there, I tried to advance the ball for the good of the state and, and the country. And, and the NCA is, is one of those examples. So, yeah, am I sorry I lost? Yeah, I would have enjoyed another term or two, but I got a chance to go, and I feel like I made the most of it while I was there. Mm -hmm. I took some chances. I, that's what I love most about it. It's a wonderful job. It's the best job in America. So, Do you harbor any concerns at all about the privatization of public lands? I mean, we have seen 
the Trump administration dramatically shrink two of the largest national monument areas in the country. It is reassuring to see the huge amount of support that I think we have here in Idaho for maintaining public lands, but there's certainly an opposition to that. I mean, uh, do you have any concerns at all about public lands? Yes, I do. Mm -hmm. I think that we've always sort of come up and knocked on the door of, of closing the deal on selling off public lands and, you know, even under the guise of putting them under the control of the state and so forth. And I have grave concerns about that, mainly because people don't understand the history of the public lands and, and how we got to where we are and what the advantages are and how we're blessed with them and, and how different this is from really any other country in the world to have these public lands. And I don't think there's a deep appreciation for the, the managers of the land and how they care about the lands. And, and so this this sort of ideological desire to privatize the land could morph into some exacerbated uh, hatred of bureaucrats and so forth. And so you could have a perfect storm uh, working in a very negative way about this. And I worry that there isn't an institutional knowledge of this and that I worry about the press being marginalized and not being able to tell the truth about what's going on. So I do worry about that. And I worry about the water quality and because it all gets back to water and it gets back to our earlier conversation about how boundaries are drawn to protect watersheds and so forth. These things are really important. And look at decisions that were made not so much on privatization, but in terms of development, where we're trying to protect the salmon runs and so forth. These are wonderful things. I was up on inside the Frank Church River of No Return on Sulphur Creek recently, and that Sulphur Creek used a tributary of the Middle Fork, which used to be teeming with salmon. And now because of the dams, you know, there, there are very few that come up that way. We need to worry about these things, and we need to have a strong press and we need to have uh, strong voices and rational voices because I understand the economic concerns. I don't want to see our forests just sort of erupt and burn up. I always believed that we could have forest health and, and do that in a management sense that didn't degrade our lands and it was smart policy, you know. So we just, we have to keep talking to one another though. And we have to send good people from public land states that, that can understand these things and not just get caught up in the ideological arguments which are dead end. Is there any chance you might run for public office again? I would do it as a single man. <laughs> and I've been married for 51 years to a beautiful, wonderful woman and who has sort of laid down the law. And, uh, so um, I'm, you know, I'm Hillary Clinton's age. I'm Joe Biden's age. I'm Donald Trump's age. I have great health. I have wonderful energy and I'm blessed with some good genes. But I want to stay married. So I'm going to protect that, that side of my life. You know, I've run seven <laughs> times for office. I'm helping other people right now, people that I believe in, people that want my help. So that's how I'm going to do it. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. I would be kind of curious to hear like who you're helping, right? And like what campaigns you're maybe assisting with. But I'm also just curious to hear like, how you're feeling generally about some of the Democrats running for state office here in Idaho, because we've got an election coming up real soon. Well, I'm, one guy I just love is John Glick, who's running in District 8A, which is an unbelievable district, which has been gerrymandered all the way from, you know, that goes from Emmett to Salmon, and you can't even get there from here. But um, he's a wonderful guy. He's running on Medicaid expansion, and so I'm helping him with strategy and thoughts on how to do that. And Cindy Wilson, I think, is a great candidate, and we could win that seat on the land board. I'm really taken by Kristen Collum. I think she's a wonderful mm -hmm. candidate. She's the real deal. You know, she's had real command experience in the Army, managerial experience, and I've tried to help her recently. And, and then I'm helping Matt Erpelding, the House Minority Leader. Uh, he's a real leader, and his reach goes beyond the North End all over Idaho in terms of recruiting candidates and helping candidates and expanding the caucus. And so that's sort of the, the, the group that I'm, I'm working with. Other than that, I'm going to Romania in two weeks to help out a new political party in, uh, in Romania. Cool. So I'm going to talk about Politics 101 and, and how that's working because it's, it's an anti-corruption group that started by wonderful young people and that I've gotten to know. So that's what I try and do, mm -hmm. you know, and write a mm -hmm. check where I can. I think Aaron Swisher is a great candidate. He's really out there working hard. I, I really 
think he's terrific. Mm-hmm. So, and we'll see what happens in the year of the woman too. Yeah. 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 Are there any issues from a political perspective that folks should be aware about, you know, thinking about the future of the NCA? Well, there's always the possibility that somebody's going to blow in with an effort to reduce it. I think what we should be clear about is that this was a piece of legislation that was based on science. Clearly, those are not political boundaries of the NCA. And pre-existing uses were all recognized. A management plan has to be reviewed every five years. So the process is really in place. And I'd hate to see that get out of whack. I think commemorations like we're experiencing right now with the 25th anniversary is really very important for people to sort of re-engage with the NCA and not take it for granted and really understand it and what's happening. That's why I think what you're doing on this program is important because it spreads the word of what what is out there and how unique this is in the world. In the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's a pretty cool thing. There'll be challenges in the future because development is everywhere. You know, mm-hmm. it's around Idaho. You know, we need more electricity or uh, who knows what's going to happen to water quality and climate change, especially with the habitat out there. Mm-hmm. So... Nothing's for for certain, but I, I learned something during the commemoration. I don't didn't know that it was lar- one of the largest concentrations of badgers. Yeah, um, I didn't realize that either. So that was I mean, <laughs> nobody nobody introduced a bill to have the Snake River badger bill. You know, I mean, <laughs> right. you know. So, but I mean, if if we have the largest concentration of birds of prey and the largest concentration of badgers, but it's a huge ecosystem, and that's what we that, that that's cool in itself. You know, but. Who knows when things get out of whack? There's lots of talk about the cheatgrass and, and what happens. What's going to happen if the temperatures rise a little bit? And what will that do to insects and the, the whole balance? Um, that's why we have the BLM. Mm-hmm. And that's why I applaud them. Mm-hmm. And, and there are really smart people out there. Mm-hmm. I mean, with good degrees and a commitment to public lands and public service. That's a great combo. Yeah, absolutely. It's a a great combo. We're Mm -hmm. pretty lucky. And somebody's got to stand up for people because we're now living in the age where if if somebody's a public servant or a government employee, we tend to denigrate them in some way, you know, because so many people don't have pensions and they look at people and say, oh, they got an easy deal here and so forth. But it's just not that way. Mm -hmm. This makes our world. We have a a balance in this country, Mm -hmm. you know, with the private sector, the public sector, and all of that. But the lines are getting blurred anymore. Congress doesn't seem to know that they're a different branch of government from the executive branch anymore. And I hope in the midterm elections that that gets sorted out. But so we'll see. Yeah. Yeah. Idaho's had some really good fights, but the reason it's named the Morley Nelson Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area is because it, the original champion wasn't a political champion. It was a community activist mm-hmm. champion. And that's how things happen, you know? He's a Republican who got along with C. Sandras, and C. Sandras was smart enough to listen to a Republican because he knew what he was talking about. He didn't question any motives he just listened to him because he was the expert and Mm -hmm. that's how things happen just if we just listen a little bit anymore you know we're going to learn a lot from each other and that that's it's a beautiful example of how things happened here c sandras was a wonderful man and a great leader i miss him dearly because of what he was able to do for this state education natural resources i mean you know you look at the alaska lands and wow you know, he this guy was a giant, and you know I was able to call him a friend, and Frank Church was my mentor. Who wouldn't want to get involved in politics with those kinds of buddies? You know, so, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, very cool. I think the last comment or question I, I'll throw at you. You know, you mentioned about the amazing work that the BLM does to manage these lands and and the NCA specifically. One of the reasons why. Steve and I and a group of other folks established this friends group, the Birds of Prey NCA partnership that we're a part of, is because the funding to continue the ongoing prairie falcon research that dictated the boundaries of the NCA stopped. And 2003 was the last year. And so you have this data set that goes all the way back to the early 70s, right? All the way up to 2003. And then they lost funding. And nobody actually knows what the population of prairie falcons in this area looks like today, right? I mean, really what it comes down to is an issue of adequately funding those agencies, Mm -hmm. right? And adequately funding the BLM so that they actually have the resources 
to continue to conduct this really important research. Well, you raise a good point, because if you don't have the data, then the area could be subject to assault by people who claim to have the data Mm -hmm. or have different data or cook the books or have a different approach and there is no defense based on scientific data. So so that's really important. Mm -hmm. And not that anybody wants the... To, to get the data to say, let's expand the area, you just need to know what's going on out there. Because if we live in a world of climate change deniers, then how do we know what impact climate change is having on the birds? Exactly. If the primary focus is on the birds of prey in this 482,000-acre magnificent area, then we need to have the data. My suggestion would be, which is sort of self-evident, would be to make sure that groups like the Audubon Society and so forth, that they just don't get passive about the fact that the Birds of Prey area has been created and therefore it's on autopilot. Mm -hmm. These things need to be, it needs to have friends. Mm -hmm. And uh, then I think we all believe what you're suggesting is that we have public-private partnerships. That's what makes the world go round, Mm -hmm. right? I don't know. I mean, Bill Gates has got all the money in the world. Well, Bezos has more of it now. But, But I mean, if they have foundations for environmental causes, then maybe... We should be tapping into people who believe in good causes where there has been good work done, where there's collaboration on Mm -hmm. the ground, and where science needs to prevail. Because science needs to prevail on the salmon, it needs to prevail on the grizzlies, it needs to prevail, and I mean, we can't let it slip Mm -hmm. on the the falcons. Mm -hmm. So science needs to guide us. I mean, maybe they'll, in this day and age, they'll be the, the ones who, the scientists who, Maybe have sold out their scientific oath or whatever it is to you know to, to to sort of sell out to other interests, but we need to be vigilant. That's I, that's the point. So I I I don't think I was really aware of what you're just saying, but uh, I'm glad you're you're on the issue. I'm glad you're on it. Mm-hmm. Thank you. We'll see. We're 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 working towards that maybe, that maybe that steps. point. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but you know, for us, it's very important, right? And I mean, I think, you know, one, one of the, the comments that, that Dean Bibles made during the, the commemoration event last night, I think, reiterates the, the importance of that. He talked about how unique this NCA is, but not even as an NCA, just as a protected area in general, saying that it's the only protected area on the entire planet where the boundaries were determined actually by the scientific research that was going on in the habitat, the true ecosystem boundary for the species that live there. And that's remarkable. It is remarkable. That's what was handed to me. I said last night at the panel that, you know, I just stood on the shoulders of a lot of people who came before us. I mean, with Karen describing all of the work that was done and and how they were able to monitor all these corners and how the, the, you know, the flight patterns were much different than they originally thought. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, we just need that data. There's no question about it. And we can't take it for granted. We just can't say this was done 25 years ago and therefore we just leave it to BLM to manage. It needs that input from community and scientists. And the other thing I'd say is that I think young people need to understand the importance of that area. I think they're fascinated by birds. They just they just love birds. And, and, And if they knew about it. So I, I would hope that you know, there are efforts for field trips and people to love that area, to just embrace it. I think it would be tough to love that area to death. You know, sometimes you talk about wilderness areas and say it's going to be loved to death. And once it gets designated, I don't think that could be loved to death. I mean, it, it's a tough area. The birds are tough. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, there are tanks going down there. You know, I mean, you know, I mean, let's face it, they're, you know. So why not have kids down there? And field trips and everything, because they need to have a historical perspective of what it is and the whole interpretation of what they're seeing and and why it's there. Why are the birds there? Mm-hmm. You know, prey base and you know the whole. It's a remarkable ecosystem. It's right here. Mm-hmm. You can get there in a half an hour. You know, just pile them in a bus and have somebody. So, we really appreciate your time. Thank you. Um, this was fascinating. If you'd like to learn more about this oral history project, more information can be found at 
birdsofpreyncapartnership.org slash dedication point. Dedication Point is a production of the Birds of Prey NCA Partnership in association with the Bureau of Land Management, the Wildlands Collective, and the Archives of Falconry. Today's episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Our theme music is by The Great Turtle. 